Welcome to the Everyday Saint Podcast, brought to you by Cedar Fort Publishing and Media. Here, we meet with our authors who share highlights of their latest book and the backstory to their creation. I'm your host, Richard Bernard. In today's episode, we have the pleasure of meeting with Casey Griffiths, the author of Four Loves and the Latter-day Saints, The Nature of Love in All Facets of Our Life. Casey expands upon C.S. Lewis's book of the same title, The Four Loves, and provides a deeper understanding of those loves from a Latter-day Saint perspective. Griffiths is a great storyteller, which he uses to help us see some of our biblical characters in a new light and help us to further understand each of the four loves. If this episode has touched you and left you craving for more, I encourage you to join Casey on the Busy Latter-day Saint podcast. There you'll discover an intimate glimpse into Casey's life, work, passion, and approach to studying the scriptures. Now, here's Casey. Casey, welcome to the podcast. Hi, glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. I am really anxious to talk about your book. Um, the book is about the four loves, and uh, I checked it out on Amazon, and um, your your book was first, and then a great man, C.S. Lewis, was second. <laughs> <laughs> if you got to steal, you steal from the best, right? Yes, yes, that um, is correct for the audience. I did not know until I read your book. I thought I was familiar with all of C.S. Lewis's book books and have read most of them. And uh, I didn't know he wrote one on the four loves, which is yeah, it's 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 not one of his better known uh, works. It's not nearly as famous as the Chronicles of Narnia or Mere Christianity, uh, but it's a book that I found when I was in college, um, and I just loved. And I sort of adapted um, to Latter Day Saints. So, like I said, if you got to steal, you steal from the best. And I really liked his approach towards love. But I felt like the light of the restoration could really help um, establish some principles that that he might have struggled with. Isn't that always the case? Mm -hmm. Definitely. <laughs> well, you have all, you've also co-authored a book with uh, C, uh, Susan Easton Black and Mary Jane Woodger. Do you want to just tell a little bit about that? Yeah, I wrote a book with uh, Susan and Mary Jane a couple of years ago called uh, What You Don't Know About the 100 Most Important Events in Church History. I've uh, gone on to author uh, books mostly with Mary Jane Woodger uh, called 50 Relics of the Restoration, 50 More Relics of the Restoration, and we just published a set of um, study guides for people that want to visit church history sites going through New England sites and then Ohio, Missouri, and Illinois. Well, I understand you have traveled extensively. Yes. So you don't but, just talk about the sites. You've actually been there and touched the ground. <laughs> well, that's one of the real blessings in my job is that I do get to travel a little bit. And I love the church history sites. I love going and standing in these places where these sacred events took place. And uh, we wanted those guidebooks to to make it so that you know, if, if you don't have somebody there that um, has background in church history, you could at least read a little bit, and that always makes a visit to a site more meaningful, more powerful. Well, I think those would be great books. Uh, my wife and I were there a year ago, two years ago, and it was just by ourselves, but it was very powerful. 
especially there at uh, Carthage Jail. Mm-hmm. Very, very Definitely. powerful. Yeah, as you walk in and, and see that. Well, first of all, your book on the four loves, I have to, I don't know if this is a compliment or not, but it's an easy read. Is that a compliment? <laughs> <laughs> That's a compliment. Um, C.S. Lewis's book is pretty short too. Uh, I think you could read through it in an hour or two. Um, and so I wanted it to be sort of um, approachable. I wanted it to be uh, not too long because, I mean, I originally um, conceived of it for students. So I teach college and uh, I wanted something for my college students to kind of introduce them to the four loves. And they can read a lot of things, but I wanted something that was fairly brief. Well, yours is brief. I believe it's about 135 pages, which looks like you expanded upon what C.S. Lewis did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is a little bit longer than C.S. Lewis's yes. book. Now, you are a great storyteller. Um, you bring up Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah, Joseph Smith, Parley P. Pratt, Jesus and the woman accused of adultery, um, our prophet Mormon, the story of Ruth, and of course, Adam on Diamond. And maybe I'm missing some there, but you, you, you don't, I'm trying to figure out how to say this. It, they almost read like a little novel. These are short stories. And, uh, you know, you really got me thinking, like, for example, Abraham and Sarah, I think, I think it was titled The Wrinkled Hands, the story. Is that what it was? Mm-hmm. The Wrinkled Hands. And as I read it, I thought, you know, I understand about Abraham and Sarah, and I know about the covenants and all of that and what happened, but he's making them really sound human. Well, we, we connect with story uh, better than just plain teaching, right? I think that's why yeah. the Savior spoke in parables. And that's why, you know, C.S. Lewis's stories, the Chronicles of Narnia, are far better known than his more kind of uh, exegetical works like the Four Loves. And so my idea in the book was to um, produce these interludes where we'd illustrate uh, each of the loves with a story from the scripture. So... Every every chapter in the book has an interlude that shows the story of Adam and Eve or uh, Abraham and Sarah or Joseph Smith and Parley P. Pratt because we're talking about friendship as one of the four loves too. And I felt like that would give people a little bit more of, of something to hold on to because I, I, I'm the same way. You know, I'll sit and listen to a story <laughs> and, and, and it'll engage my attention a lot better than just someone explaining something to me. And, you know, when you sit in sacrament meeting, when somebody starts their talk by going, the dictionary defines repentance as that's when I kind of drift off. But when someone gets up and says, here's the story of how I fell in love with my wife or, Here's the story of how I converted to the church. I'm I'm with them. I'm engaged. So I tried to employ both techniques in the book, and um, I hope it worked. You might have noticed from the books that I mentioned earlier that I'm a historian, and so I consider myself a, a storyteller. Um, and in writing this book, which was really very doctrinal, it's kind of new territory for me, I wanted to keep that element of story in, in place as well. Well, I think you did an excellent job, and I think you said you try to be a storyteller. I think you succeeded. I mean, oh, thank you very much. Really, they are great stories. Now, the first story you tell is about you being a teenager and infatuated with a young lady. Now, I'm not going <laughs> to spoil it for the readers. They're going to have to get the book and see what actually happened. 
but um, you were a you were actually an average teenage boy. You just didn't know how to react to somebody saying, I love you, unless it was your mother, of course. <laughs> but this wasn't your mother. It was a girl that you uh, really were interested in. But the readers are going to have to find out what really happened with that story. But I think it was a great way to, to start off this idea of what what is love. So you've got basically four chapters. Why don't you describe, first of all, in a brief way, what those four types of love are. Yeah. When you say I was an average teenage boy, I think that's a polite way of saying you, you were dumb. Uh, well, uh, I, I, <laughs> I was actually going to use that word and something said, no, don't call him dumb. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I taught, I taught teenagers for a number of years and I never called them dumb. I just said the judgment center in their brain hasn't fully developed yet. Um, and I, I could excuse a lot of things, but yeah, I mean, part of it was, uh, there was this young lady who I was very, very romantically interested in. And uh, at a certain point, she said the words, I love you to me. And at that point, I mistook uh, what she was saying. The whole story is in the book. Um, like you said, we won't spoil it. But when a person says, I love you, I mean, you don't always know what they mean. Uh, I, In this case, I thought she was saying, I love you as a friend. Um, I'm still not totally sure. I still don't have the courage to to ask her. <laughs> well, you I saw are... her a couple months ago. Oh, okay. I started to say, yeah. they say you're in contact with her uh, in Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. We're still, we, we ran into each other at a, at a funeral of all places last year. Um, and again, I'm not totally sure what she meant that night. And maybe she doesn't want to be dragged into this whole saga, but the central dilemma was we are obsessed with love as a, as a culture. You know, we, we talk about love all the time. Um, we write songs about love, poetry. All of our movies are about love. A love story is how you make a historical event like the Titanic uh, palatable to people. If you throw a love story in the middle, then they can deal with all that. But we don't think deeply um, about what love means sometimes. And we also don't use a very scriptural approach uh, towards love. Uh, the scriptures celebrated different kinds of love. And that's kind of where C.S. Lewis uh, found his jumping off point, which was in, in the New Testament, which is in Greek, uh, in the Greek language, there's four words for love that denote different kinds of love. Uh, so you start with eros, which is romantic love. And that's usually the type of love that we obsess over and talk about and that we spend so much time and, and energy on. And eros is great. But... The scriptures also present the other loves as being just as important as Eros, and in one case, maybe even more important than Eros when it comes to our happiness. Uh, so the second type of love that the scriptures bring up in Greek is, is philia. Philia is friendship love or brotherly love. You know, the city of uh, Philadelphia, which is the city of brotherly love, comes from the term philia. Um, like I said, if we spoke Greek when that when that young lady said, I love you, she would have either said, I eros you, which is I romantically love you, or I philia you, I I love you as a friend. And things would have been way more clear. I wouldn't have had to write this book uh, to begin with. Um, the third type of love is called storgy. And storgy is affection or familial love. So this is the love uh, that when your mom says, I love you, uh, she's expressing. And then the, the final type of love, which was considered in the scriptures to be the highest and most desirable type of love, is agape. 
um, agape is Christ-like love. It's it's love the same way that the Savior loves us. And it's so different that in some passages in the scriptures, instead of using the word love um, for the word agape, they use the word um, charity. So if you're reading the King James Bible, for instance, and you read 1 Corinthians 13, uh, where Paul says, charity, uh, charity suffereth long. You know, charity, charity is not puffed up. Charity seeketh not her own. Um, the original word there would have been agape. And in some translations, they just use the word love uh, right there, which is totally appropriate. But understanding the differences between these four kinds of love and how the 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 people that wrote the scriptures felt towards love was kind of my aim um, when I set out to write the book. Okay. Well, let's put this into practical use here. How can knowing about Eros help me? Well, Eros is the one we know the most about, right? It's the one that we celebrate and we talk about all the time. And yet, uh, sometimes Eros is confused with other um, other things that aren't Eros. Um, for instance, we sometimes think of Eros as like a burning fire. That's the analogy I use in the book is that Eros is like fire. Um, and assume that Eros is synonymous with physical attraction. Um, it's not necessarily. Uh, one of the things C.S. Lewis points out in his book is that you don't necessarily have to have eros to be intimate with someone. Um, that that physical attraction can happen whether or not there is love that's present, and the two shouldn't be confused with each other. In fact, in his book, he uses the term Venus to describe physical attraction and lust and separates it from eros. But eros is something that that can exist, you know, among a young couple. Uh, that's totally crazy about each other or an older couple who still has romantic feelings for each other, but might not, you know, be as physically attracted as they were when they were younger. Eros is romantic. Um, it's the kind of love that makes you want to choose someone as a life partner. And it's, it's really great. This isn't, this book isn't knocking Eros. It's talking about how wonderful uh, Eros is, but, but one of my concerns might be, uh, that when we emphasize eros as much as we have as a society, we maybe create uh, a less happy and less holistically fulfilling life than if we're aware of all four of the loves and we pursue them as much. We we go after eros like all, all, all the time, right? When I say love, eros is what most people are thinking of in their mind. And we we teach young people too that, you know, falling in love, and getting married is the greatest thing in the world, and it is indisputably great. But we also maybe sometimes put so much pressure um, on our romantic relationships when it comes to our happiness that we don't realize that all four of the loves are necessary for a person to really be happy and and feel connected. Um, so I again, I I'm I, I'm in love with my wife. I'm in eros with my wife. Um, but at the same time, too, I've come to understand that if I put all the pressure of my happiness on my romantic relationship with my wife, that could be um, it could be unfulfilling. It could be uh, a trap that causes me to miss out on a lot of happiness that God intends for us to find by exploring the other types of love that exist as well. Yeah, I think it's an important message, especially for the young, because... Um, even when the church talks about eros, they don't use that word, but they're always talking about chastity and things like that. And I think sometimes it creates a dichotomy uh, for, for the youth. Uh, 
But if they could understand in the beginning, um, these are not necessarily, well, I think they are things that you grow into. I'm much older than you. I've got, I'm looking at your face here and I can see you're a young man and I've got children your age and a lot of grandchildren. But um, it is also something that as you mature, you grow into also. Yeah. Uh, but being able to understand that as a youth, I think is a very important, important part. Well, let's look at um, philia. Is that, am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, philia, philia. I, I, I did look up some Greek pronunciation guides and I work with some people that speak Greek and I checked with them and I think philia is acceptable. Okay. Um, philia is friendship love. Uh, so uh, the uh, interlude in the book that introduces philia is Joseph Smith and Parley P. Pratt, who were dear, dear friends. Um, and the story I told was that Parley went on a three-year mission to Britain and then came back. Um, his wife died right before he left on his mission. While Parley was in Britain, he remarried. Uh, Elizabeth Pratt came back with her, came back with the baby. And when Parley arrived in Nauvoo, uh, Joseph Smith burst into tears. You know, <laughs> uh, They ran down and they hugged each other and they were both weeping because they loved each other so much. And that is not the manly ideal that we sort of hold up today. Um, but they they genuinely loved each other and would use terms like love to describe their relationship. And part of the problem we have today is that, like I mentioned, love to us is always eros. It's always romantic. Uh, to Joseph Smith and to almost every uh, group of humans in every generation previously, friendship love was a really, really important facet of a person's existence. Um, the kind of romantic paradigm we have right now was something that really Jane Austen and the romantic writers of the 19th century brought into play. And in emphasizing that, we maybe de-emphasize some of these things like friendship that play a big role in our happiness too. So to go back to my own life, I, I, I love my wife um, romantically. I'm an eros with her and I've got to keep that fire stoked. But uh, philia is like water, you know, it's one of those things that sort of flows more easily. I, I think our friendships sort of happen naturally and we don't put as much effort into them as we do into our romantic relationships, but they can be just as important in leading a fulfilling life. And some of the um, parts of the book that I emphasize this, I actually looked up some studies on happiness and uh, one really broad-based study carried out with a large a sample in seven in several different countries uh, showed that the happiest people weren't just in a romantic relationship. They had a network of people that they could connect to. That It seems like the magic number, if I recall, was somewhere around 10. That you had 10 people uh, that you felt like you were friends with, that you were happy to see, that you could go and talk to um, and have connection with, and that that contributed a lot to happiness. Again, if we place all of our happiness on a single relationship, uh, even if it's something as wonderful as a marriage, that's a lot of pressure uh, for marriage to bear. And sometimes when we um, spread our needs out among a network of friends and we're acting as a friend and friends are helping us, it it, it leads to greater happiness. See, again, I, I love my wife, but there are some times when she, you know, finds joy and satisfaction in spending time with friends or or co-worker. She's a, she's a lighting designer that works at several theaters and she loves to spend time with her co-workers. Like she likes to get out of the house 
and has this great relationship with the people that she works with. And I think that, you know, the fact that I'm not her one and only, I'm I'm the person she's an Eros with, but she also has these beautiful friendship relationships has made her a really happy person. And likewise with me, I teach um, hundreds of students. I work with a lot of different teachers. My relationships with them have contributed uh, to my happiness. That that kind of love is also really, really important in us finding fulfillment. Uh, but if you just look to a one relationship to be, you know, the sole provider for your emotional needs, it's 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 tough. Um, first of all. And second, it might not be what God intended, because again, philia is a really, really important aspect of coming here to earth. Joseph Smith um, said friendship is one of the grand principles of Mormonism. And it's okay if he uses Mormonism because he's Joseph Smith, I guess. Um, Joseph Smith said that friendship was one of the most important principles of the gospel and that the the friend relationships we have in this life are intended to be eternal as well. They might not be solemnized in temple ceremonies, but they can be very, very critical. And in some ways, I mean, they could be solemnized in the temple. In Joseph Smith's day, sometimes people were sealed together because they were friends, um, uh, not necessarily in a marriage relationship. They thought of sealing as a little bit uh, broader than we do. Well, let's move on to Storgy. Uh, Is that pronouncing right? Storgy. Storgy. Okay. Yeah. Now, now, Storgy uh, was the one where I had the most work to do on my own because uh, C.S. Lewis was a bachelor most of his life. Uh, he did fall in love with a wonderful uh, woman named Joy Davidman um, and was married just for a few years before she passed away uh, from cancer. And some of his best stuff is is linked to Joy and and the influence she had on him. But this is an, an English bachelor who, when he was writing The Four Loves, um, wasn't super experienced, um, and had he had a difficult relationship with his family too. I think it's fair to say his mother died young, his father was kind of cold. He had a good relationship with his brother, um, but this is also where C.S. Lewis, who um, uh, was an Anglican, uh, was sort of bereft of theology linked to family. Um, the Church, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, has this wonderful theology about family and how important family is. And our conception of God is very familial, right? The term we use for God is heavenly father. Um, in the family proclamation, heavenly parents, uh, the young women say heavenly parents, that our conception of God is familial. And and so C.S. Lewis, you know, kind of just defines Storgy as affection. Um, and the example he used was actually between a dog and a cat that are used to each other. I tried to dive a little bit deeper and check this with my New Testament scholar friends, that Storgy can also demote this familial love, where if you were talking about your mom or dad or brother and sister, you never would say, I'm an Eros with them. That's that's contrary to what we believe. And you might not even be friends with them, right? But there's this connection that deeply comes from kinship, from from blood, that the gospel, the restored gospel, does such a great job emphasizing and teaching as an essential part of our existence, too. So if I'm using my relationship with my wife as an example, um, my wife and I have each other, and that is a very fulfilling relationship. She also has these people that she works with, these friends, and that's fulfilling for her. But the group that really, really uh, connects with my wife, probably her most important relationship outside of a relationship with me and her relationship with God is with her sisters. 
uh, my wife has um, uh, four sisters and they live within 20 minutes of us. And um, they are constantly coming by, stopping by our house. They have dreams of building a cul-de-sac one day where they'll all live together. Um, the last couple of years they've stopped by less, but it's because they text so much every single day. There's like a text chain that just never ends and they share every single thought with each other. And that that familial bond, that that storgic bond, to borrow, to borrow the term, is really important to her as well. So if a person's trying to figure out um, how to lead a happy life, I think as a society, we've got the uh, we've got the message that you want to fall in love, you want to fall into eros. And maybe we're doing okay too, saying you need to have friends. And then we would say a third and essential part of love is also family. Uh, the people that we grow up with, the people that we're connected, that that's a vital part of our salvation too. And I think it's pretty plain uh, for Latter-day Saints how important family is. I took a friend uh, through one of the temple open houses, and when I showed him the celestial room, uh, his comment was, this looks like a, a family room. Like It looks like you guys could you know, pull out a board game and set it down and, <laughs> and start playing. It's all these comfy couches and this soft carpet and these you know, nice floral arrangements. And I actually said, you know what, that's not too far off from what we conceive heaven to be like. Um, heaven is being in a good place with the people that you love the most. It's never been this idea of just you and God alone in the cosmic universe. Um, Joseph Smith couldn't imagine heaven without the people that he loved most there. In fact, he said, I don't want to go to heaven unless the saints can come with me. And if the saints and I go to hell, we'll turn the devils out and make hell into heaven as well. Uh, so so that's the third type of love uh, that we emphasize as well, which is this familial connection. That again, we have this beautiful theology, these temples, and this background to basically say, hey, it's heaven is great, but what are you going to do when you get to heaven? And will it be heaven if the people that you love the most aren't there, if they're separate from you? That the relationships that make life so precious and so fulfilling down here on earth endure into the next life. And so we're used to putting a lot of effort into our romantic relationships. Do we put as much effort into our friendships? And do we put as much effort into our family relationships as well? The analogy I used for Eros was fire for Philea water. And then the analogy I used for storage or familiar love was earth, uh, that it's, it's stable, you know, it's steady. It's the most consistent uh, of the loves. Um, and when something happens uh, to our family lives, it's like an earthquake, you know, it's, it's devastating. It's one of those things that is really, really challenging, but that can be overcome, but that we should be putting as much thought into our family relationships as we put into our romantic relationships, bare minimum. Well, that leads me to what I think is one of the most important ones, which is agape, and uh, which I understand is charity. And that we are all been told, the scriptures told, tell us that we should ask for charity, that gift. And, I'm, yeah, it, it, and I'm, I'm beginning to understand that the more I understand about charity, the more it does change me because I understand it's a lot more than what I originally thought it was. Yeah, it's funny when the scriptures talk about love, um, they, <laughs> they, they don't have a lot of passages that are like, go out and, you know, find your one and only 
um, the scriptures talk about charity, agape, or Christ-like love as the most desirable. And that's why I say it might be the one of the four loves that's actually more important uh, than romantic love. Like it's the, I, I guess charity is sort of the the font that the other loves flow from. Or in, in my book, um, Eros was fire, Philea was water, uh, Storgy was earth, and charity was air. Uh, that you can survive without fire, right? Uh, you can survive for a little while without water, earth, but you can't survive more than a few moments without air. And also air is something that's ubiquitous. It surrounds us so much that we sometimes just take for granted that it's there when we forget that it's essential to every single moment of our life that we're constantly breathing in. Now, on one level, that's like the love of God. It's always present. It's always there. And it's essential uh, for us to live and breathe and survive. Um, on another level, it's something that really we have to sort of work to recognize is there and then understand how important it is before we can really put it in a place with other people. And I mean, we do this experiment in my classes where we come up and, you know, I have a couple say, I love you, um, like they're romantically linked. And then I usually have, you know, two boys come up and say, I love you, like they're friends. And there's a lot of giggles with that. And then we have a mother and a son. This is all role play, say I love you. But then the last question we ask is, could we bring two of you up and have you be total strangers? And could you say I love you to a total stranger and and mean it? And yeah, you can. That's, that's charity, right? That's what um, the Savior was going for. Um, in Matthew 25, the Savior really simplified the gospel. Um, he said, inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. And so the gospel really just says there's two people on earth. There's you and there's Jesus Christ, because everybody that you meet, the way that you treat them, Christ will see as the way you would treat him. And this is essential, too, because charity infuses the other loves with more meaning as well. Uh, for instance, using my wife here, there are days uh, when my wife and I might struggle to feel romantic towards each other. You know, we've been married for 23 years and in, in the middle of feeding the kids and getting everybody to dance and all the stuff that we have to do. Sometimes there's not a lot of time for romance. Um, and we're friends most days, but sometimes we fight and we're not friends. And then there's even sometimes episodes that might threaten our family love. Uh, but all of those loves are stronger if I view her through the lens of charity. If I see her as God's daughter and someone that's struggling but that needs my help, and if I can act Christ-like towards her, then a lot of these other loves kind of naturally fall into place. So, I mean, another analogy I use is that um, the the other loves are the bricks we use to build a building. Charity is the martyr that holds the the bricks together and turns it from just a pile of bricks into something that really has structure and power. Um, so I'm, I'm comfortable saying it's the most important of the loves. And definitely from a scriptural perspective, it's the one that they ask us to really seek out. I mean, in the Book of Mormon, Mormon says you have to pray with all energy of heart for this gift. And that's a point C.S. Lewis brings up that I put in the book is that charity is the least natural of the loves. You know, it's natural for us to be attracted to people. It's natural for us to uh, make friends. It's natural for us to exist in families. But charity is supernatural. 
um, you know, the natural man seeks seeks their own, seeks what's best for them. Charity is asking you to set that aside and seek for what's best for other people, to be completely selfish. And that's, I think, part of the reason why Mormon says you have to pray and ask for this, and why Paul lists it as one of the spiritual gifts. Like, it's something that actually is supernatural, that shows that if you can feel this kind of love, you've moved beyond the natural man and uh, made a big step on your road to becoming like Jesus and therefore becoming like Heavenly Father. Well, you end the book with the four loves in everyday life, and then you have a postlude, the beginning at the end. Uh, you start off with Adam and Eve, and you actually end with Adam and Eve. But I'm going to leave that to the readers to find out what you're saying about that and how you sum all this up. I want to thank you for your time. First of all, I know you're a busy schedule, and you're You've got students that need attention. You've got children and a wife, and uh, you made time for this, and I'm grateful for that. Um, where can they find your book? I mean, it's published by Cedar Fort, and I thank them for that. Cedar Fort is a dream to work with, and I hope if there's any aspiring authors out there uh, that they're they're looking at Cedar Fort as a publisher. Uh, it's available at all um, Latter-day Saint bookstores and on Amazon. Um, it's also an audio book too. Um, so I recorded the audio and for some people, that's a lot easier way to access. That's how I do most of my reading. So hope you can find it in all those places. And, uh, like I said, just thank you for the opportunity to, to share these ideas that I've taught them in my classes for years and years, uh, but to have it in print actually is a, a thrill. And, and can I add one thing too? Um, my sister-in-law, Mackenzie Wise, um, did all the illustrations for the book oh. and she did a lovely, it was actually my wife who said, you should get my little sister to do the illustrations. And I said, I don't want to work with family. Uh, that's not the best, but Mackenzie did a beautiful job. Yeah, and she did. Th this book, maybe more than any book I published has the look and feel of exactly what I wanted it to look like. And I'll go out on a limb and say, this is probably the most personal book I've, I've published too, because it talks a lot about me, a lot about my relationships and and my wife, you know, who who has, after God, been my most important instructor when it comes to love, understanding love, and what it really means to love somebody else. Now, you left out one thing. Uh, it is available on Kindle. Um, it is. That's I, correct. I read all, I, I don't listen to books very often because I want to highlight. I want to make notes. <laughs> so I always go for the digital version. I used to have a lot of books in the house, and now... It's hard to find a book in the house because they're all on these digital devices, but it is available on Kindle. So we want to let people know about that too. Well, it's been great talking to you and um, I'll let you get back to what you need to finish up for the day. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Richard. It's been a delight. Casey's books are available at cedarfort.com, deseretbook.com, and of course on Amazon. Your support means the world to us, and if you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to give it a thumbs up and share your uplifting comments. By doing so, you'll help others discover this podcast and join our growing community of listeners. And lastly, don't forget to explore the other podcast I host, The Busy Latter-day Saint. In each episode, I have the privilege of interviewing incredible members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from all around the world who share their personal experiences and unique insights on Scripture study. The podcast is spiritually uplifting, 
and a treasure trove of different approaches to studying the scriptures.